If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them and turn with me again to the book of John, John chapter 8. This morning we continue with a series that we began last week, a series that I've entitled Simply Jesus Stories. I know I'm not very clever with my titles for sermon series. Nonetheless, that's descriptive. So this morning we continue with our Jesus Stories series that we are doing this summer, and we'll spend the next several weeks looking at various accounts of Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. Last week we focused on joy. This week we focus on mercy and grace. John chapter 8, technically we're going to be starting with chapter 7, verse 53, and reading down through verse 11. Listen as I read. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Well, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The Boston City Marathon bomber, Edward Snowden. And up until late last night, George... Zimmerman. What's the one word or one of the words that links all of these men together? Accused. Another word we might say is justice. Justice. They all neither they all either need to be brought to justice or they need to receive justice. The desire for justice, and that word justice is something that is hardwired into who we are as human beings, as image bearers of the Creator. 
We see it in our kids all the time. It's, it's just not fair, Dad. They're crying for justice. They're longing for justice. I put justice in your head here at the outset of our time together this morning because I think it's justice that is at the heart of this story that we just read. It's a story of Jesus that is shrouded in mystery. I mean, why doesn't Jesus condemn this woman? Why does Jesus write in the sand? And what is He writing? And maybe most importantly, why is this whole story bracketed in my Bible? Just take all those questions and tuck them away for a moment. We're going to get to them. Maybe not to your satisfaction, but we're going to get to them because this morning I want to meditate for the next few minutes on this beautiful story of justice and mercy and grace that once again displays the glory of our Savior. The glory of Christ Jesus. There is a lot here. So hang on. Hang on with me. Two truths guide us this morning as we make our way through this great story of Jesus. Two truths, and the first one is this. True justice demands more than we can handle. True justice demands more than we can handle. I want you to see this morning that more than anything, this is a story that exposes our hearts and reveals the heart of our Savior. It exposes our hearts and it reveals the heart of our Savior. And we're going to start with our own hearts and the hearts of those there, for this was certainly the experience of the men that day. They saw who they really were, they saw who He really was, and it left them speechless, with nothing more to say. You see, this was an encounter with Jesus like no other. Jack Nicholson once famously said, you can't handle the truth. And Jesus says a bit more gently, but with much more drama, you can't handle true justice. Let me explain. What's going on here? Well, in contrast to last week's story, we started at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Jesus' ministry at this point is in full swing. He's caught the longing of the Jews who came from all around wanting to be healed, wanting to hear His authoritative words of teaching, but also He's caught the disdain of the authorities of the day. Those in power that see Him as a threat to that power. These are the authorities who, at least at one level, are authorities within the Jewish structure, all subservient to the Roman law, the Roman state of the day. But these are supposedly, within that culture, these are the good guys. These are the protectors of justice, specifically as it pertains to God's revealed law. 
And so these men, they come to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is with an issue of justice. At least that's what it seems like. But John, as we read this account, John gives us essentially what is a spoiler. Something that the the folks on the hillside didn't have. He says in verse 6 in the very beginning, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge against him. You see, for for these men, for these protectors of justice, for these lovers of the law, these Pharisees, this isn't an issue of justice at all. They're not interested in this woman. It's Jesus who has the target on His back. It's Jesus who they have in their sights. And so they bring this woman, apparently fresh from the arms of sin, they plop her before Him, and they say, remember what the law says, Jesus? Let me quote it for you. Leviticus 20.10 If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. I don't know if you saw any of the replays of the George Zimmerman verdict that was late last night. Whenever you watch one of those high-profile court cases, there's always this tense quiet, this heavy quiet in the room as they're waiting for the verdict. Well, they pose this question to Jesus, and their words hang there. You notice that? They just hang there. And they hang there prolonged by the fact that Jesus doesn't immediately reply. He bends down and he starts writing in the ground. Just imagine the tension on that hillside. You see, they've put before Jesus what seems to be a dilemma. And it appears something like this. If he lets this woman go, he seemingly tramples on the law. Well, that gives them solid charges to go ahead and arrest Jesus, to demand a trial, and that's exactly what they want to see. They want this man out of the way. But the other option is that if Jesus respects the law... Well, it seems like then he tramples this woman. Well, this wouldn't be all that bad either. According to the Pharisees, Jesus was traveling around as, as the compassionate Savior, the one whom the, whom the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners were flocking to. And now the buzz would be, come to Jesus. You might get stoned for your past, but maybe not. See, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, that wouldn't be all that bad. Maybe his popularity points would plummet and he would just quietly disappear from the scene. And so what is Jesus to do? Respect the law or respect 
the woman. Well, it's not as simple. It's not as simple as it might first seem to be. It's not as simple, surely, as the Pharisees make it out to be. There is much more to it. This is not an open and shut case. And so what Jesus does is Jesus shows these Pharisees that true justice demands more than they can handle. You see, the Pharisees were a certain type of people. I know many of you know this. Many of you who know and love the Scriptures, they loved the law. But more than that, they prided themselves on their adherence to the law. They were law abiders. And yet Jesus came to this earth because He knew that the law couldn't save them. The law can't save us. It never could And it never will. And so he exposes them. And he does it through this encounter that they have with the woman. You see, their case is riddled with holes. Let me show you why. First of all, this scenario that they bring before Jesus is close to impossible. It's close to impossible to get a case like this. Because two witnesses had to catch the couple in the act. Not in a compromising position. Not coming out of the house one morning. But in the act. Secondly, the fact that this woman has been nabbed is almost proof that this whole thing was a setup. Now this doesn't excuse her from her actions. We'll get back to that. But it does make the point that this whole thing was a conspiracy. What about the laws against conspiracy? To be a legal witness, you can't be a party to the crime. Well, thirdly, where is the man? Where's the man? The law specifically says that both are to be executed. Well, the man's not there because... He was part of it. He was part of the setup. And just a little side note, in a culture that was particularly prejudiced to women, oh, how this must have burned Jesus. That here this woman was being taken advantage of by these men. Well, lastly, this whole thing, this whole scenario is... Illegitimate. The Jews at this time are not allowed to execute anyone themselves. They are under Roman law. That's why Jesus had to be taken to the Romans to be executed. You can't execute a woman just by the Jewish law. You see, Jesus knows all this. And in fact, in His divinity, He may be looking directly at their hearts and seeing all this in vivid color Himself. Here are the supposed keepers of justice twisting it for their own ends at the expense of this woman, thinking that they are the just ones. Thinking that they are the just ones. Do you see what Jesus is doing? How does He do it? He he does it with, with a sentence. Let Him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, in the Old Testament law, the witnesses of a crime were obligated to be the ones who began the execution. 
to throw the first stones. And so, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, go ahead and stone her as long as you are meeting God's requirements for justice. Doesn't mean the Pharisees had to be perfect. Doesn't mean those there had to be perfect. But it did mean that they had to meet God's requirements for justice, which they clearly didn't do. And his words, that simple sentence, pierces their hearts. They are guilty. Their consciences are accused. And they have nothing to say. And so they simply leave. Now what can we learn from this? How does this hit us this morning? Let me suggest a couple different things. First, I think it ought to prick our hearts a bit. Just the whole scenario. We'll never be in a scenario like this with motives like this. And yet, how easily we ourselves can feel justified in our own actions. Quick to judge. Quick to mishandle those who fall around us. Judgmental and self-righteous. How easily we fall prey to ourselves. And for some of us, maybe some of you here in this room, you go so far as to look to the law as the Pharisees did for your own righteousness. Rather than clinging to the words of the hymn that say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You say, Lord, look what I've done. I'm not like one of these I'm not like her. See, we love justice. But we don't want true justice in regards to ourselves. We can't handle true justice in regards to ourselves. But I think there's another takeaway as Jesus is presented to us. Just think about Jesus, this compassion, this unbelievable mercy and grace, grace extended to the least of these, grace extended to one caught red-handed. And as we alluded to earlier here, Jesus shows his intolerance of injustice. Those who use the powerless or the vulnerable for their own ends. Jesus wants nothing to do with it. Don't miss your Savior. But there's more. There's more to see about Jesus through this text. And that brings us to the second truth that I want us to see. And it's this. In Jesus, justice and mercy perfectly meet. In Jesus, justice and mercy perfectly meet. As I said, this passage isn't so much about a woman who doesn't get what she deserves or a bunch of religious leaders who do get what they deserve. It's about how those things show us Jesus. 
How they show us Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. Let's talk a little bit about the justice of Jesus. How does John establish, the writer of this gospel, how does he establish Jesus as just? If justice and mercy meet perfectly in him, how is Jesus the just one? Well, John does something throughout this gospel, something we would miss or we do miss having not worked our way through this book as we often do in teaching the scriptures. John, throughout his gospel, compares Jesus to Moses. See, John wants his readers to understand that Jesus is the divine one. And so he fills, like we saw last week, he fills his gospel with signs that are going to validate the fact that Jesus is the divine one. That he is God, but also dispersed amongst all those signs is teaching about who he is. And one of the things that John has been building throughout his book is these comparisons with Moses. Moses, the one who received God's law. And now in John 8, Jesus, the giver of that law. Let me give you just a couple of them. In John 1, 17, he writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In John 5, 46, But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And then in John 7.19, Jesus asked the crowd at the temple, Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? I did one miracle and you were all astonished, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me, Jesus says, for healing the whole man on the Sabbath. Now, why do I bring those comparisons? Why do I bring those allusions to your mind in the book of John? Because one of John's points is to hold Jesus up as the one who is better than Moses. Notice that every time John brings Moses up, he does so in relationship to the law of God. See, John has made a point of comparing Moses, the law receiver, with Jesus, the law giver. And it all culminates here in verse, or in chapter 8. It all culminates here in this story. And one of the ways that we see it is through a very simple act. The finger of God. The finger of God. This is beautiful and I want you to see it. Jesus does something in this account that we have no recorded record of him doing anywhere else. He writes. 
He writes, Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. We don't know what he writes. In a sense, it doesn't matter what he writes. We only know that he does write. One of the interesting things I think about this passage is why does John use the word finger to describe how Jesus is writing in the ground? Is he just being descriptive so we don't imagine Jesus with a, with a stick in his hand? Or does he want to make a point by using the word finger? Well, brothers and sisters, I think that's exactly what John is doing. You see, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, We find this word that's translated as finger mentioned in only two contexts. The first context is it's mentioned throughout Leviticus and once in Exodus as it describes the actions of the priest and it mentions their finger. But more significant are the other two times. In Exodus 31.18 we read, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And the other time it's used is in Deuteronomy 9 when Moses recalls this very event. You see, it's this phrase, the finger of God, that though brings to our minds the events of Mount Sinai and those tablets of stone to the Jewish mind is even more significant because the finger of God describes the intervention of the almighty transcendent creator who descended upon a mountain to communicate with his people. It described the vehicle by which God was reflected down to a people far from him, far from his character. And now who is communicating? Jesus. The one better than Moses, and yet God himself. With the finger of God writing in the ground. Moses was just a mere messenger. Jesus is the author. He is the lawgiver. He is God Himself. And the law brings condemnation, and Jesus, the lawgiver, brings salvation. That is the picture that John wants us to see. But I know that you're still wondering, why the brackets? Why the brackets? Without boring you for the next 15 minutes about why the brackets are there, let me say that this is a text, this is a passage, this is a story that is highly disputed. We don't have a copy of the New Testament. We don't have an original copy of the New Testament. All we have is over 5,000 different fragments of all different places, all different books in the New Testament, all compiled to bring what you have sitting in your laps this morning. And the committees who have put those manuscripts together and who have put the New Testament that you have in your laps together. And I will just say that over 5,000 ancient manuscripts is way more 
than any other ancient manuscript. The Bible that you have in your hand is well attested to through ancient manuscripts. But this story, it doesn't find its place in the oldest copies of the book of John that we have. And so there's this question about, does it belong? Should it be in the scripture? But there's enough uncertainty about it that they put it in your Bibles, they put it in your laps, and yet they bracket it, I think, unhelpfully. They bracket it in your Bible. But the reason I wanted to talk about that, not at the beginning, is because I want you to see that it fits that it belongs, that as John is presenting Jesus as the divine one, as John is presenting Jesus as the better Moses, John 8 and this story, it fits. I think it belongs. And I've told you the reasons why. And we can speculate, we can speculate all day about why this would be such a scandalous story to include in the Scriptures. You know, as the Scriptures were passed down, they were done through, not through the printing press, which wasn't invented, they were done through scribes, which hand-wrote the Scriptures from generation to generation. Could it be that some scribes, seeing this story of Jesus, seemingly disregarding the law, thought that this was too scandalous to include in the Gospel? Quite possibly. But what I want you to see this morning is that John is wanting to say something. John's wanting to declare something about the glory of Christ and who he is. And he does it here through this story. Well, if we get back to our passage, you still say, well, he can't go against his own law. Yes, you've established that he's a God of justice. That he is the one greater than Moses. And you're right, he can't go against his own law. And so what is Jesus doing? How is grace, how is mercy meeting justice? Well, that's where we end. How can Jesus seemingly disregard the law and let this woman go? We know, we know that even though she was framed, she is likely guilty. What does Jesus say to her? He says, go and sin no more. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus essentially says to her, yes, before God, you are guilty. But I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you because I'm about to be condemned for you. See, he doesn't disregard the spirit of the law. That's not how this woman walks away. She doesn't walk away because of a technicality in her case. She walks away because of the grace and the mercy of the lawgiver who allows that law to come full bore on him. And friends, that's how you and I walk away this morning. That's how you and I sit here this morning, because of the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. He who knew no sin 
became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. If you believe this this morning, if you trust this this morning, then Jesus' words to you are the same words that He said to that woman. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't condemn you. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news. I close with this. Who are you like in the story? Who are you like in this account? Are you like the crowd who stood watching this all unfold and thought it very interesting and then simply forgot about it, went back to their home, back to their lives? Maybe you're like the leaders this morning, judgmental, prideful, and yet humbled, ashamed, the pride of your own accomplishments in the face of Jesus' words. Well, I contend that the best person to be in this story is the woman. That's the best person to be. The sinful woman who came humiliated and yet left changed, forgiven, restored, and now free to live a life of gratitude following her Lord. Friends, the message of the Gospel is that whatever you have done, there is grace enough because He paid it all. And in Jesus, justice and mercy and grace all perfectly meet. John Newton, the former slave trader, we all know him as the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, that familiar hymn, but he also wrote other hymns. One of them is one that we sing often, let us love and sing and wonder. And I couldn't help but think of the third verse of that hymn, let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, what happens? Justice smiles and it asks no more. He who washed us with His blood has secured our way to God. True justice, indeed, we can't handle. But praise God that in Jesus, grace and mercy and justice all meet. And now His words are to you. Receive it. And go and sin no more. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You I thank You for the privilege of proclaiming such truth. Truth that is like a balm for our hurting, broken souls. Father, I pray that if there are those here who have never experienced the joy, the freedom, the rest that is found in Jesus, as justice and grace meet head-on in Him, Father, I pray that You might show Yourself to them. 
that Jesus in all his glory might be revealed. And for those who have long trusted him, Lord, may we be reminded once again, may we be exposed once again and driven to the Lord Jesus that we in turn might go and sin no more in response to such grace, in response to such undeserved mystery and mercy. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us in Christ Jesus, the one you sent for us. Amen.